Warning. The content you're about to consume was put together by a Bruce who's never set foot in Australia. Fuck me dead if he gets some things right. And good on you if you do. It's heaps of bloody work to understand how things go around here. Oh, and down under, the word tucker means food. So don't confuse it with that wanker from the idiot box in the States. Now, piss off. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Insane Level members, Isoke, Nick G slash Cassie LMM and the Worry Clan, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Awesome A, Jen S, Ryan F, and Asshole. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. Well, we're finally here on Fuckers, taking the show on the road again, just like we did with our Canada episode. Only today, we're heading to the bottom of the globe to unpack the mysteries of down-under politics and pay homage to our beloved down-under fuckers. And as it was with our Canadian episode, I want to state up front that no one show can ever do justice to the political history of an entire nation. Our goal is to learn a bit about the Australian system, dissect some of their most pressing issues, and create a baseline of understanding about their government and beliefs. Now, for our down-under fuckers, it will no doubt be amusing to hear me try and yank-splain their entire political system, but it's worth a shot. Now, before we begin, a very special shout-out to our main man and original down-under fucker, Rafe Raff, for compiling research worthy of a doctoral thesis. The episode wouldn't have come together without his efforts, and we're only just scratching the surface of some of the material that he sent over. So good on you, mate. We'll start with a brief history of the Commonwealth, talk about Australia's government structure and elections, give an overview of their territories and political parties, and dig into their economy. There are a number of parallels between the American trajectory of political life and the ideas that have taken hold in Australia that are fascinating, frustrating, and familiar. So we'll draw on some regular themes of the show to provide some context. And as one might imagine, there are major issues facing Australia today. The COVID hangover, geopolitical consequences of global trade disputes, strained relations with First Nations people, and harsh effects of climate change. A note up top about the term First Nations people. Some of the texts we rely on and much of our casual understanding of Australian history uses the term Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So we'll try to be clear when it's being used in text. Language in Australia, like many other colonized parts of the world, is evolving, so we're using the Australian Style Manual as our guide, and we'll be using First Nations people to describe Native Australians as they are ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse. Thank you, 99. It's estimated that on the mainland of Australia alone, more than 250 languages were once spoken. Today, that number has decreased, and much of what was considered the Aboriginal population has moved from the outback, the interior parts of the country, to the coastal areas where individual languages have mixed with English. And most of the time, First Nations people are grouped together, so here's a quick video that does a much better job of explaining the distinction between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. As Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are mentioned a lot together and share similar cultural traits, but we're both distinct from each other in many ways too. 
originating from a group of about 274 small islands between Papua New Guinea and Cape York, Torres Strait Islanders speak Meriam Mer, Kalalagoya, and Torres Strait Creole languages. Out of all Australians who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, we make up about 6%. So again, as outsiders, when we reference these cultures, we're going to group them together under the Aussie Style Guide as First Nations people going forward. Now, aside from the fact that we've cultivated a healthy number of Australian listeners, it's a really good time to be digging into Aussie politics because there's an election coming up. It's a parliamentary system, so the fate of the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, depends upon the parliamentary results, and as of right now, it does not look good for Morrison, but we'll get there. Then, of course, there's the recently announced AUKUS alliance between the US, UK, and Australia as a bulwark against China's global expansion. You might remember that AUKUS made headlines last year with the bait-and-switch of nuclear submarine purchases from France as the supplier to the United States. Perhaps the most pressing issue, though, that looms over the nation is climate change. That's right. Australia is a bit of a bellwether when it comes to global warming, and the past few years have been disastrous. Between wildfires and floods, the nation has been ravaged, so the conversation there is a bit more robust than it is in the United States, although the same diseased anti-science thinking made it into the conservative consciousness and, as a result, policymaking. So get your unfucking passport and visa ready as we head to the bottom of the map to unfuck Australian politics and commune with our legion of down-under fuckers who will undoubtedly have a lot to say about this episode and how much of it we got right. UNFTR. Chapter 1. Aussie History 101. Welcome to Australia. People think we're big because we're at the bottom of the map, but it's kind of an optical illusion. We're only about the size of Rhode Island. Our only building is the Opera House in Sydney, and only about a quarter of us even wear clothing. The average temperature year-round is about 80 degrees Celsius, which is about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, I believe. We have spiders the size of large recreational vehicles, commute to work on surfboards, and can fetch a beer with a boomerang. Nicole Kidman is the Prime Minister. Russell Crowe is in charge of defence. Oh, and New Zealand isn't a real place. We just made it up. All right, let's do this. It's estimated that Australian society is around 60,000 years old. Now, the Dutch started poking their noses in around the 1600s and, of course, named it New Holland because it must have reminded them so much of the Netherlands. But it wasn't until the 1700s that the Brits began to actively colonize the country. Not to be outdone by the Dutch, they decided to call it New South Wales. And yes, it's true that it was used as a penal colony by the Irish and British until 1868, with more than 150,000 convicts being banished to... Paradise? I'm sure it didn't seem that way to the convicts, of course. Uh, you said penal. <laughs> Penis. At the turn of the 20th century, settlements expanded rapidly, with the British occupying many coastal areas of the continent and pushing First Nations people further inland and destroying much of their heritage and culture along the way, as one does when you believe that the world is yours to pillage and plunder. I am William Wallace. According to the CIA World Factbook, which, by the way, is a really excellent resource, even though it's you know put out by the CIA, 
Systematic annihilation of First Nations people in Australia led to a decline in population from an estimated 700,000 before contact to a low of 74,000 in 1933. The Brits began aggressive colonization with the discovery of gold in the 1850s, and one by one, over the 19th century, the modern colonies of Australia were established and ultimately drawn together into the Commonwealth in 1901 under its own constitution, though still loyal to the Crown. Before 1901, Australia was not a nation, but rather six British colonies. These colonies were under the lawmaking power of the British Parliament. During the 1890s, representatives from the colonies met to discuss the idea of joining together to form a new nation. A written constitution was developed to set out the rules for how this new nation would work. The opening paragraph of the Parliamentary Government of the Commonwealth of Australia, a treatise on Australia's founding that is in the Creative Commons now, talks about the founding of the federal government. There was no Damascus Road miracle about Australia's federal conversion. It took 60 years of spasmodic official effort and fluctuating public interest to bring the Commonwealth into being. The final federal movement of the 1890s had been preceded by almost every kind of individual and group advocate of federal union which democratic colonial government afforded. British colonial secretaries and governors, colonial political leaders and public petitioners, inter-colonial conferences and parliamentary select committees, local demagogues and factions, all by 1890 had at one time or another peddled the cause of union. So although it was technically beholden to the crown and would ally through the 20th century through today with British causes and rule, Australia developed its own political life and culture distinct from its rulers in the UK. Eventually, as it was in Canada, Australia formally separated from Britain in 1985 and was declared a sovereign and independent state, though the monarchy remains as a figurehead and there's an appointed governor that exceeds the role of any other ambassador to the country. Chapter 2. Parliament. It's Australian for government. Let's dig into the Aussie government structure a bit so we're better equipped to understand the upcoming election and how shit works down there. I'll try to draw as many parallels as I can because I'm a stupid American that has to relate everything back to our culture. First off, like the US, Australia is dominated by two major political parties. It's not a two-party system per se, but it might as well be because they've been so historically dominant. The first is the Labour Party, or NLP, headed by a gentleman today named Anthony Albanese, which is probably closer to the Democratic Party here in the States. Although, as you might have inferred from the name, it has a different relationship to Labour, and that's a very important distinction that we're going to spend some time on in a bit. The other major party is the Liberal Party, headed by Scott Morrison, the current Prime Minister. There are two sides to the Liberal Party that kind of, I guess, caucus together at the federal level, for lack of a better explanation. The National Party and the Liberal Party. They're distinct political parties at the regional and local level, but at the federal parliamentary level, they're ostensibly the same thing. They're even sometimes referred to as the Coalition Party, so you might hear these terms used interchangeably on national issues. Now, to American ears, the term liberal is a misnomer because the Liberal Party the National Party and Coalition, is usually conservative. 
These are the Republicans of Australia. We talked about this in our isms and libertarian episodes. For many in politics, especially where classical economic theory is concerned, the term liberal is typically associated with conservatism. It's fucked, I know. But now you know that liberals down under are conservative. Red is blue, up is down, and there you have it. As it is in Canada, the minority party in parliament is called the opposition. Sometimes it's referred in Australia as the alternative government. The opposition is a creature of the House, by the way. Aussies have a bicameral legislature as well, so the opposition is always tethered to the House and not the Senate, though there can obviously be members of the opposition in the Senate. There are smaller parties that have played a spoiler role throughout history, though most of them are nowadays defunct, but there is a progressive party that is starting to gather some momentum, and it's called the Australian Greens. In tightly contested elections, these smaller parties play a really important role because it means that one party or the other has to try to create an alliance with them to create a governing coalition and elect a prime minister. So again, in a parliamentary system, the people elect their representatives and the majority party or majority coalition in a tight race installs the prime minister. And to really understand the importance of the balance of power in a parliamentary system, Let's hear from Juice Media, the creators of Honest Government Ads, to explain. A hung parliament is when you tell both major parties to get fucked by ensuring that neither of us wins the 76 seats required to form the next Australian government on our own. A hung parliament sounds like a bad thing, and that's how we want you to think of it. But a hung parliament can also sound like a good thing. Oh my god. Sorry. A hung parliament means that to form government, we'll be forced to negotiate with the not-shit MPs you elected to the crossbench. The crossbench is that group of seats at the bottom of the U that aren't held by either one of us. It's it's where democracy happens. Ew. And in a well-hung parliament, a not-shit crossbench holds what's called the balance of power. Which means that in exchange for their support, those not-shit MPs will want us to adopt their not-shit policies. Like an anti-corruption commission, which we don't want because we're corrupt as fuck. By the way, we've played clips from Juice Media before, and if you haven't subscribed to their channel, please do, because they're the fucking best. Anyway, there are 151 members in the Australian House of Representatives, which is one for each of their territorial electorates. They're like congressional districts for us. They have to run elections a minimum of every three years, and it's up to the prime minister to determine when, which is still one of the weirdest things to me about parliamentary elections. In the other house, there are 12 senators for each state and two for each territory, and we'll get to those in the next section. These fuckers are elected every six years, half rotating every three, but only for the states because territory senators are elected for three years, but at the same time as the members of the House and half of the Senate and elections are usually held at the same time in the House elections, but they don't always have to be. And if you understood that, then please email unftrpod at gmail.com and explain it to me. By the way, the Aussies vote by something called preferential or proportional voting, which is essentially what we call ranked choice. We talked about ranked choice in a recent episode. Essentially, you select the order of the candidates that you prefer and votes are thrown out and reapportioned when they don't get enough to win and are thrown toward your next preference and so on until all of the votes are cast and the ballots are spent. Now, unlike America, the Prime Minister of Australia has no specified term limit. As long as they can enjoy the support of Parliament, they can remain in the position. Also, recall from our Canada episode that the provinces and territories up north have a good deal of legislative and economic autonomy. Well, the same holds true for the states and territories in Australia. 
Both federal and state parliaments can make laws regarding education, health, and taxation, although when the laws don't agree in very specific areas, the federal legislation takes precedence. So that's the Aussie system in a nutshell. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. UNFTR is also brought to you by Insane Level members Sam C, Cring G, Cindy S, Corey S, Nathan E, Michelle H, W. Jeremy D, Eric Wagner 101, and Rob Nasby. Chapter 3. Island, Country, Continent. By the way, as we get back into this, I hope our down-under fuckers appreciate that we haven't stooped to using any of the lazy tropes and stereotypes about the great nation of Australia. Austria! <laughs> well then, <laughs> good day, mate. <laughs> I think it shows a, a level of respect that we would go beyond shallow cultural references and try to pigeonhole them as a nation of crocodile-hunting bushwhackers. That's not a knife. That's a knife. It's a nation of serious people, good people. So let's talk about where they're from. There are six states and 10 federal territories. Each has a level of self-governance and even some regional party affiliations. Now, regarding the territories, there are three internal territories and seven external, basically islands or groupings of islands off the coast of Australia. So let's start with the states. New South Wales, NSW, the first state. Wine regions, quaint seaside villages and mountain regions, New South Wales has it all. Most know it by the capital of Sydney, the largest city in Australia. NSW is the most populous of the states with a population of 7 million and home to the financial district of the nation. Queensland, QLD, the Sunshine State. Queensland possesses some of the greatest natural beauty on the planet, from the Daintree rainforest and plentiful islands to the Great Barrier Reef. Queensland is a tourist paradise. If the coast and countryside isn't your thing, there's also cosmopolitan capital Brisbane, or as the Aussies call it, Brizzy. Apart from the droves of tourists that find their way to this down-under wonderland, about four and a half million Aussies call Queensland home. South Australia, SA, the festival state. Relax and chill in South Australia's capital, Adelaide, or explore the state's many wineries and natural wonders, including Kangaroo Island. Sharing a border with every mainland state, it has a population of one and a half million people and boasts a Mediterranean climate and is Australia's first free state. Victoria. Vic, the Garden State. 99 just pointed out that that's the name of New Jersey in the United States, so don't hold that against them. <clears throat> anyway, Victoria's capital, it's spelled Melbourne, but I guess they say Melbourne. Melbourne has been voted most livable city in the world multiple times due to its cultural diversity and thriving urban culture. It also boasts the Twelve Apostles National Park, one of the most popular tourist destinations in the country. With more than five and a half million people, it also has more familiar seasons with chilly winters and dry summers. Western Australia, WA, the Golden State. Capital, Perth. Perth? Perth. Perth. Capital Perth is one of the most geographically isolated cities in the world. Tucked inside Australia's largest state on the west coast of the nation, you can find just about anything in Western Australia, from wine to surfing, parks to islands. With a population of just over 2 million people, 
It's also the heart of the mining and petroleum industries, two of the primary drivers of the Australian economy. Tasmania, Taz, Island of Inspiration. Last but not least, we have the island and state of Tasmania. Beaches, mountains, wilderness, and rivers, Tasmania is home to nearly every natural wonder. Capital Hobart is a small city with only a little more than 200,000 residents that make up the bulk of the half a million people on the entire island. So that's it for the states. Outside of these main areas, we have the 10 territories, starting with the Australian Capital Territory, or ACT, which is home to the nation's capital of Canberra. It's kind of like a Washington, D.C. in that it's located within New South Wales, but it has its own independent government. When it couldn't be decided whether Sydney or Melbourne, Melbourne, would become the nation's capital, a compromise resulted in the planning and creation of Canberra as the administrative home of the country. The entire territory has a population of 350,000. Now to the north, there's the Northern Territory, known as the Top End. With only a quarter of a million inhabitants, the Top End is known for its sprawling national parks and canyons. The last of the internal territories is Jervis Bay, a 40-square-mile territory along the coast of New South Wales and is known for its iconic white sand beaches and gorgeous bay. And yes, I put the size into miles and not kilometers because we're stupid. The external territories are Ashmore and Cartier Islands, Christmas Island, the Cocos, or Keeling Islands, the Coral Sea Islands, Heard and MacDonald Islands, Norfolk Island, and the Australian Antarctic Territory. Chapter 4. Neoliberalism Creeps In all right, we've done the happy horse shit, and now it's time to get down to some unfucking and set the table to bring in our friends from Chicago. Yes, them. But first, let's talk about what makes the Aussie economy tick. Australia operates under a classic market economy system with membership in the WTO and G20 and several other important bilateral agreements with Korea, Japan, Chile, Malaysia, New Zealand, Singapore, Thailand, and the United States, among others. In recent years, it even put a greater emphasis on expanding relations with Gulf and Asian states, most notably China and India. We'll talk about how the nature of the internal economy has changed, particularly with respect to labor and inequality, but their market approach has greatly benefited their large natural resource industries such as mining, energy, and food production. The Australian government and industry have been able to attract a significant amount of foreign investments into the country to help extract its abundance of resources such as coal, iron, copper, gold, natural gas, and uranus. Uranium. That too. One such investment of national importance is the Gorgon Liquid Natural Gas Project, located in Western Australia, in partnership with Chevron to the tune of $54 billion, and it was completed about five years ago. And there are also three additional major projects on the drawing board that have drawn the ire of environmentalists. Australian GDP growth has been relatively stable over the past couple of decades, with periodic surges and declines related to recessions. But for the most part, the economy has been stable and productive, though in recent years, growth has begun to cool off as export prices have begun to fall and expected demand and energy from Asia has grown less than anticipated. Just prior to the pandemic, growth was about 1.8%, which is subdued but not terrible. 
Recent tensions with China and general economic fallout from the pandemic caused the economy to tank like all others in 2020. But 2021 saw a healthy rebound in GDP, a reduction in unemployment, and amazingly, they've been able to keep inflation largely under control, with estimates being around 2.5% for 2022 and 2023. More evidence that we are just fucking assholes in this country that have been besieged by corporate greed and profiteering. Anyway, while industry and agriculture make up about 30% of the Australian economy, with specialties ranging from sugarcane, wheat, beef, and poultry, to chemicals, steel, and mining, it's largely a service-based economy with a half-trillion-dollar budget. Now, in terms of trade, Asia is by far the largest export partner of the country, with 40% going to China and 15% to Japan. Likewise, Australia imports about 25% of goods from China and 7% from Japan, with the United States making up only about 12% total. Is it time yet? It certainly is, 99. It most certainly is. So one of my primary resources for this episode is a fantastic book by Dominic Kelly called Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics. The phrase is attributed to former Prime Minister Bob Hawke, the leader of the Labour Party who served from 1983 until 1991. And it came during a radio interview with Hawke where he was tearing into an organization called the H.R. Nichols Society, the protagonist of our story from this point forward today. One of the most crucial elements of Australian society, and I'm talking about the settlement class, not the First Nations people, is its historically labor-centric and worker-friendly ethos. Kelly quotes what he calls a comprehensive account of Australian politics by a writer named Paul Kelly, no relation, in the 1980s to illustrate the importance of industrial relations in the country since its founding. Here's an excerpt. Quote, arbitration was the greatest institutional monument to Australian egalitarianism and its quest for social order. However, during the 1980s, this industrial consensus collapsed, and the H.R. Nichols Society was a key actor in the process of creative destruction that brought the consensus to an end, end quote. See, at its founding, the Commonwealth was faced with a structural challenge to determine how workers and industry would collaborate when it came to wages, rights, and settling disputes. Essentially, the Constitution granted the federal government powers to make laws with respect to wage protections and arbitration, thereby taking that power away from not only the states, but from industry as well. The idea was to establish fair wages across the board, and it gave tremendous power to the unions and to the working class. And for 80 years, centralized wage fixation was the bond that held the working class together in Australia. Held together until the ideas of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman began to infect the minds of industrialists, nativists, and wealthy who set about the same path as those in the United States, though they were lagging about a decade behind. The pivot came with the birth of the H.R. Nichols Society, the one club that we'll focus on more than others, though Kelly identifies several conservative organizations and think tanks that were established over the past several decades because the sole purpose of H.R. Nichols was to subjugate labor, deregulate industry, and drive corporate profits all under the familiar refrain of free market capitalism. They began by attacking union bosses, calling them corrupt and their leaders pigs. They issued reports similar to the now familiar white papers of conservative and libertarian think tanks in the states like Heritage and Cato. Their policy statements are rife with familiar language to unfuckers. It's the coded language of the Chicago boys, and here's an example. 
quote, to support the reform of Australian industrial relations with the aim of promoting the rule of law in respect of employer and employee organizations alike, the right of individuals to contract freely for the supply and engagement of their labor by mutual agreement, and the necessity for labor relations to be conducted in such a way as to promote economic development in Australia, end quote. Serial unfuckers could give a masterclass in decoding this language by now. The rule of law, always wrapping it in some sort of conservative rule framework for everyone's security. The rights of individuals, which is a way to separate workers from unions to make their own choices. Economic development, as if giving more money to industrial owners promotes economic growth rather than working class success, taking the shape of the ultimate form of wealth redistribution only from the bottom up instead. Societies such as H.R. Nichols played an outsized role in shaping public opinion on issues of labor and wage controls, and its success came from a severe focus on chipping away at worker protections. Other think tanks and groups followed suit by narrowly focusing on key tenets of neoliberalism. Kelly identifies the other big players as the Samuel Griffith Society, designed to make Australia's constitution more favorable to wealthy industrialists, the Lavoisier Group, dedicated to climate science denial, and the Benelong Society, which aimed to turn back any gains made by First Nations people. Other right-wing groups over the years in Australia are Centre for Independent Studies, which was heavily influenced by the ideas of the Mont Pelerin Society, the Centre of Policy Studies, which took aim at deregulation of industry, the Crossroads Group, Society of Modest Members, Australian Lecture Foundation, Centre 2000, Australian Adam Smith Club, and Council for National Interest. So back to H.R. Nichols. The two most influential figures behind H.R. and the neoliberalism movement in general were Ray Evans and Hugh Morgan. I doubt any American has ever heard of these assholes, but they're as instrumental as anyone in undermining the protections of labor in Australia. Morgan was born in 1940 and was a highly educated executive who moved into the mining industry. As Kelly notes, quote, Morgan had come to realize that industry could not simply sit back and hope that its good work would be appreciated. Business people, it appeared to him, had to actively persuade the community in the same way their adversaries did, end quote. So Morgan's revelation was sort of like a, a Powell memo moment for the Aussies, one where it was just decided that businesses had had enough and it was time to go on the offensive. By his side for decades was the faithful Ray Evans, whom Kelly describes as sort of a corporate theologian. Born in 1939, Evans was responsible for most, if not all, of Morgan's controversial stances in public speeches, writing more than 200 public addresses for the frontman Morgan. To get an idea of what kind of person Evans was, here's an anecdote from the book. Quote, when Ray Evans was asked about the lack of women among the pinstripe suits and graying heads at the $100 a head launch of the arbitration and contempt in 1986, his glib explanation was that we did not think people could afford to pay $200 so we didn't invite wives, end quote. Wow, what a dick. Anyway, Evans and Morgan didn't have to guess at the best approach to promoting neoliberal ideas down under, because Edwin Fulner, the president of the Heritage Foundation, visited Australia in the 1980s to give the Aussie business class a primer in how to influence public opinion through think tanks and publications. And he found an all-too-willing audience already mesmerized from prior visits by Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, who extolled the virtues of free markets and the evils of wage controls and unions. 
It was one thing to develop neoliberal policies, but like the conservative media in the States, the Aussies needed an outlet for their ideas. Here's Kelly again. Quote, of particular note were the Institute of Public Affairs, Quadrant Magazine, and the Center for Independent Studies, which played key roles in developing a new conservative political consensus that would come to dominate the Australian political landscape, end quote. Quadrant was of particular importance to H.R. Nichols and the other single-issue think tanks. You see, Quadrant actually had deep roots in disinformation, as it was originally an extension of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, an international anti-communist group founded in the 1950s. Again, Kelly, quote, in 1966, a New York Times investigation confirmed long-held suspicions that the Congress for Cultural Freedom had been secretly funded by the Central Intelligence Agency since its inception. Ay, ay, ay. With the specter of communism dwindling on the world stage, Quadrant was just free to shift focus over the years, but it remained a stalwart of conservative thought, or liberal thought as it is down under. For years, Quadrant was run by a man named Robert Mann, who was a faithful conservative until his fateful decision to publish a report called, quote, Bringing Them Home, which was about First Nations child removal, similar to the forced removal of Native children in the Americas. But get this, because he was so lenient towards Native issues, man was actually replaced. They just threw him out. And he's replaced by a man named Patty McGinnis, who could rightly be compared to Steve Bannon here in the States. His promise upon taking over was to throw the mawkish sentimentality which had become prevalent on a number of policy issues, most importantly on aboriginal issues. I mean, another fucking dickhead. Anyway, throughout the 80s and 90s, the liberals would chip away at labor. It was never enough for Ray Evans and the H.R. Nichols members. But then, in 2004, the right wing unexpectedly took control of the Senate and began planning the demise of labor. In May 2005, Work Choices was announced, the government's scheme to radically overhaul the industrial relations system, the thing that all Australia had based its economy on. I mean, since the Commonwealth was founded in 1901, this was their shot to undermine all of it. So according to Kelly, quote, protections that workers had enjoyed under existing legislation were to be stripped away unions more heavily regulated, and the maligned Industrial Relations Commission sidelined in favor of a new Fair Play Commission, end quote. So by this time, the right had control of the House and the Senate, and the historic protections for labor were legislated into oblivion. The neoliberal takeover appeared to be complete, but work choices would be short-lived and replaced in just a couple of short years by the Fair Work Act, which sought to correct what many came to view as a horrible affront to the working-class Australians. But as we always say, elections have consequences. Since then, H.R. Nichols has greatly waned in influence, and there's been a pitched ideological battle. Tony Abbott briefly took control as prime minister, but was ousted shortly thereafter by a more refined and less hardline liberal member named Malcolm Turnbull, who resigned in 2018 and cleared the path for current dickhead in charge, Scott Morrison. Nevertheless, the damage has been done, as Labour has only been in charge about six of the last 25 years, with its influence diminished significantly due to the efforts of neoliberal assholes inspired by Hayek, trained by Friedman, and sold by the conservative media and H.R. Nichols think tank. Rounding out our sponsors for today, this episode is brought to you by Pro Member El Nico. 
Chapter 5, Truth and Reconciliation. So like we said in our Canada episode, one of the greatest challenges that today's Anglo nations face is coming to terms with their violent pasts. And like Canada, Australia is, at a minimum, having the conversation unlike the United States. The similarities in experience between First Nations people in Australia and those of the U.S. and Canada are horrifying and real. And like the U.S., Australia's ruthless colonial violence extended to other parts of the world as well, notably with the Kanakas, a Hawaiian word for man. Between the 1860s and turn of the 20th century, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 islanders were forcibly brought to Australia to labor in the fields and farms in Queensland and New South Wales. As it was among First Nations people, most of these men were brought against their will through forced removal. In terms of the First Nations, there have been attempts over the years to reconcile the past through legislation, commissions, groups, and movements, but it wasn't even until 1967 that First Nations people were granted citizenship in a nationwide referendum. The overwhelming yes vote was the culmination of a 10-year campaign by white and black Australians, led by the daughter of a South Sea Islander slave, Faith Bandler. At the time, it was widely hoped the referendum would also deliver something closer to equality for Aborigines. But after more than 100 years of deep inequality, Aborigines were also looking for justice. Today, First Nations people continue to battle for rights and justice under the Australian system, and election years always have a tendency to put justice on the ballot, though with so many issues plaguing the Morrison administration, it's unclear how much his coalition can move the needle and whether anyone even believes his government is capable of addressing them with any seriousness or empathy. Like the reconciliation efforts underway in North America, one of the areas that advocates are making headway is in facing up to the reality of Australia's brutal colonial past. We'll link a few resources and show notes, such as the ongoing research to document the locations and histories of massacres that took place over centuries. The University of Newcastle has been at the forefront of documenting massacres across Eastern Australia, and The Guardian has actually been compiling the work of this and other organizations to create a full interactive map that we'll also link in show notes. Newcastle researchers believe the figure to be in excess of 500 massacres of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people after contact. Relations with the First Nations people is just one of the issues that haunts the Morrison administration as the nation continues to recover from wildfires and is currently under siege by flooding in several coastal areas. Because of its geography and location, Australia has been on the early receiving end of the brutal effects of climate change, a chilling premonition of what's to come for most of the planet as we continue to lose the battle. Homes underwater? Homes on fire? Homes underwater and on fire? No problem. Try get fucking used to it. Because we just have to accept that Australia's becoming a harder country to live in. Mining and fossil fuel industries have dominated the political landscape since the likes of Ray Evans and Hugh Morgan began to infect the nation's politics with an industry first, worker second, planet third, and First Nation people last mentality. Take, for example, the Great Barrier Reef one of the most fragile and important ocean ecosystems in the world. Scientists believe that at least two-thirds of the reef has already been damaged in some way and that it should be protected at all costs. Yet the Australian government lobbied the UN to keep it off the endangered list. Accusations flew against the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who was present in the room when a small barrier reef foundation, with almost no capacity to actually manage a budget of any significance, 
was awarded almost $450 million in a no-bid contract. Not to be outdone, the Morrison government extended the small agency business benefits and grants during the pandemic. The agency was accused of being a slush fund because it seemed that literally no one, including the agency itself, understood why it was getting the money or what to do with it. So the foundation and the government said, oh, it's to stake the agency with a substantial base of funds that will attract other donors because they were trying to reach an $800 million figure that could come in from the private sector and other donors and other groups, all to invest it into other climate change mitigation efforts, right? Except that according to The Guardian, the foundation said after that initial boost, it only raised $21 million in in-kind donations from research and project partners, which is about 6% of the total $350 million target that they still had in front of them. Then there's a fella named Barnaby Joyce, the deputy prime minister put in charge of managing droughts, even though he seems to believe that climate change is all part of God's plan. According to Joyce, he's produced a bunch of reports for the prime minister about droughts. The only problem is no one can find them. Or how about Angus Taylor, the Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister? That's a real fucking title. His job is to reduce emissions. He got the Morrison government to set aside a billion dollars in funding for companies to help modernize and green the economy's grid, except that it was revealed that of the 12 projects selected, five were natural gas and one was a coal project. These very questionable at best, corrupt at worst actions on managing climate initiatives have made the Morrison government look uncaring and out of touch. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. Morrison's having a little trouble putting moments like this behind him. Mr. Speaker, those opposite have an ideological, pathological fear of coal. There's no word for coalophobia officially, Mr. Speaker, but that's the malady that afflicts those opposite. That's Morrison talking about coal in Parliament before he was Prime Minister, a stance that really hasn't aged well. Being tone-deaf and demonstrating a lack of empathy is kind of a hallmark of Morrison's persona that follows him on the campaign trail and prompts interviewers to talk to him like this. Does it sometimes take you a while to get this through your thick head, the emotions of it all? Uh, no, no, look, I, I feel it and bleed like everybody else. Do you? Of course I do. How do you bleed? Well, I do it privately and I do it quietly and I do it in the arms of my wife and family. How do you bleed? Jesus Christ. That's 60 fucking minutes, Australia, by the way. How do you bleed? I've pulled clips from Australian media before and it never fails to make me laugh. The disdain that they show for elected officials is fucking hilarious. And it's totally normal there. In fact, here's a question at a press club event recently that still has Australians doubled over. I've been provided with a text message exchange between the former New South Wales Premier mm -hmm. and a current Liberal Cabinet Minister. In one, she describes you as, quote, a horrible, horrible person, going on to say she did not trust you and you're more concerned with politics than people. The Minister is even more scathing, describing you as a fraud and, quote, a complete psycho. Does this exchange surprise you? And what do you think it tells us? And we think Peter Ducey from Fox is tough on the White House here? Good Lord. Anyway, time is running out for Morrison, who has seen his poll numbers plummet over the past two years at the worst time possible for the liberal majority. And recently, Scott Morrison's approval ratings tumbled to an all-time low, according to a poll conducted for an Australian newspaper. 
Morrison's ratings have reached their lowest level in nearly two years. Australians believe that Morrison handled the Omicron outbreak poorly and think he's a corporate and industry shill who lacks any understanding or empathy for working-class people. All of which sets the stage for Labour to come out ahead in the May election and for Albanese to become the next Prime Minister. UNFTR. I'll argue that our torture of innocent refugees, failures on Indigenous rights and intransigence on global warming has twisted our own humanity, made us profiteers and exporters of suffering, damaged the international compact on displaced people, fed exclusionary and nationalist politics around the world, slowed decarbonisation of the planet, and left us and others fleeing climate disintegration in coming years at extreme risk. That's famous Aussie footballer Craig Foster speaking at the same press club event with Morrison in the audience. It's a great speech that Rafe Raff shared with us and beautifully highlights the most pressing issues facing the country. It's worth a watch if you have a moment. My big takeaway from immersing myself in the majestic faraway land down under is that New Zealand isn't a real place. I just can't believe it. (laughs) But also, how the Aussies are, well, they're just like us. Only funnier. Like us, they sacked a previously undisturbed part of the world and nearly annihilated the local population while extracting precious minerals and resources from the ground in our relentless pursuit of destroying the very planet that gives us life. That they're just as susceptible to evil right-wing propaganda and the beguiling ways of Uncle Fucknugget. It is, after all, the land that gave us Rupert Murdoch. Unlike us, they actually have a rich history of protecting the working class. Subjugating labor is only a recent development, which should give us some hope that it can be undone, perhaps as soon as the next election. And unlike us, they have the strength to own up to their homicidal past even if no amount of truth or reconciliation can ever make up for two and a half centuries of atrocities. Australia is home to great natural beauty and wonder, but our shared colonial past and U.S. exported ideas from the Chicago School bind us together in a pitiful club that is destroying what gives us life. That being said, I'm far more optimistic about their ability to speak truth to power coalesce around the most important climate justice issues we face, and to pursue justice initiatives that begin with an understanding and someday lead to healing. Perhaps that's naive and based upon too small of a sample set of down-under fuckers who communicate with us. But this much I know. Whether it's on the way to hell in a handbasket or to salvation through empathy and cooperation, our journey forward will be funnier and a lot more fun with a few Aussies in the passenger seat. Good luck to labor in May. Climate justice and First Nations justice are the same. Now go on, and peace off. Here endeth whatever this was. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. All right, 99. Post-show musings. Have you changed your opinion on which part of Australia you want to go to first? Hmm... Wherever has the white sand beaches? That's Jervis Bay. 
Sure. Right? One of the territories, I believe. Mm. I was listening, but I didn't I didn't memorize it yet. I think I still want to go to Tasmania. I want to go, I want to be like a snowbird, but I'm going to go to Australia in the winter because it's summer there. Right. Red is blue, up is down. Yeah. So I'll go wherever it's the warmest when it's cold here. When it's 80 degrees Celsius and 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Whatever. I still don't know. I don't know. how. I don't know. No. Time changes. We should just you use You call the same Australia, stuff. it's yesterday, <laughs> right? No, it's tomorrow. They ring in the new year two days ahead of us or two days after. I don't even know. Doesn't make any sense. This much I know, I got to give it up to Rafe Raff one more time. Yay, Rafe Raff. Rafe Raff, we'd been compiling your notes and your emails. And we got great suggestions from other down under fuckers along the way. But Rafe Raff really sent a compendium of like amazing articles that sort of gave me like an idea of the credible media sources in Australia. For book love, though, if you're interested in Aussie politics and you love the stuff on H.R. Nichols, which I did. It's Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics by Kelly. We'll have that obviously in Bookshop, but that was, a, that was a really great read. So many parallels to how we built this conservative structure of think tanks in the United States. And what's interesting there is, you know, media is a little more, again, satirical and a little hard edged and, and funnier and biting. But, you know, Murdoch gets away with more bullshit in the UK and the States than he does down in Australia. There seems to be like less of a tolerance for his bullshit. But then there are these other kind of severe publications like Quadrant that have great influence on policymakers. It's always amazing to me, like how few people there are. Like, it's just not a big population. So you can see how a whole bunch of these conservative groups that acquire funding can like infiltrate the government so easily and begin to manipulate and change people's minds over time. It's a lot more difficult to do that in a place in the States, which is why it's just so amazing that it even happened. But I could see the path pretty clearly down there, the way that uh, Kelly lays it out in the book. It's a great read uh, for anybody who wants to check it out. And for my friend Bobby McDee in Ireland, you sent us an email literally as we were heading into the studio. And I was thinking about working it in to the episode just for some street cred with our, our folks down under. But that would have been, uh, I think that would have been too disingenuous. So I'm just going to read the portion of his email. Just an idea for the down under episode, and hopefully you haven't recorded it yet. A couple of weeks ago, Australia, or Straya, as they call it, lost a sporting icon named Shane Warna. Warn? Warna? I don't know how to say it. He was a cricketer and arguably the best bowler of his generation, a true innovator. He was only 52. I think your down under audience would be impressed and touched if you said something in the episode that Shane Warne, Warna, was the best captain Australia ever had. And then he sent a follow up that said, Warna was a cricketer, not a footballer. Don't fuck that up. <laughs> so I may have fucked up the pronunciation of his name, but I'm sorry for the loss of a of a national champion to our down under fuckers. I didn't feel like I could uh, take credit for having that thought. Um, like we honored Gord Downey in our Canada episode. Uh, this just came up kind of too late, and I had a little bit uh, more of a feeling for Gordy than I did for uh, for what's happening with Australian football. Or cricket, cricket. Or bowling. He said he's a bowler. Well, cricket, you know. Is that what you do? You bowl? It's like lawn bowling? Sure. Really? No. Not at all, right? I think it's just like the movement. Cricket. Hey, down under fuckers, I'm just going to say it. Cricket's weird. It's like fucking curling 
and I just, I don't know. Nothing to do with curling. I know, but like, are you bowling? Are you cricketing? Are you, what are you doing? Isn't it like a croquet with bats or baseball? I don't even know. All I know. No, it's baseball. It's like baseball with a flat Yeah, but it's not thing. baseball. It's baseball, but it's not because baseball is baseball and it is pitchers and catchers time and the Mets are going to fucking dominate. Everyone from down under should just should be a Mets fan. Okay. I think that would be amazing. Sure, if you guys want to be sad all the time. You're a Mets fan. I know. That's why it's true. This is our year. It's time to not be okay, sad. Okay, are we going to go to a game together? We have to. Yes, we are. Okay. 100%. Okay. All right. Unfuckers, I put that on the record. We are going to a Mets game together. Me and 99. We'll tell you when we're going. So you guys, it'll be like, where's Waldo? There you go. Try and spot us in the crowd. Yeah. Jeez, guys. I mean, I, I know I don't live there anymore and I can't really stand the Mets, but you could still invite me. I had a great time putting this episode together. Uh, I want to thank all of the Down Under fuckers that have shared stories and articles with us over uh, the past year and a half. Again, specifically to Ray Raff for putting together, I mean, such incredible information for us uh, to be able to, you know, put some things together. But again, this is just the groundwork. We didn't come, you know, we didn't open up anybody's eyes, certainly in Australia, about uh, how the system works or something that's particularly fucked or even how to unfuck it. For us, it's just another table setter to be able to introduce unfuckers around the globe to just like the table stakes in every other, at least English-speaking country, so we can have sort of a, a, a general understanding and, and a larger conversation about what's happening. So what's interesting, again, from a an American perspective about what's happening in Australia, is they really are caught in the middle of whatever sort of issues are on display economically or militarily with China. So you see how economically tethered the Australian economy is to the Chinese economy, which makes sense. I mean, just geographically, that's just fucking sensible. So what do a you lot mean? Of, what do you mean? If you look at a map, well, China's over there and Australia's down there. All the way at the bottom. It's just a big square. So how is how are they close? I don't understand. Well, see, when Chinese vessels uh -huh. go to sea okay. and they get to the edge, they fall off. And they fall off. Yeah. Where do you think they land, 99? Space. Australia. <gasps> yes, oh. it's, like a, it's like a little kitsch basin at the bottom of the earth there. Okay. That's right. That's how gravity works. Wow. Yeah, now you know. So you think about how economically interdependent they are. <laughs> so the Trump years were kind of fucked for them, right? Because we're, we're going after their main trading ally, but we're allied in these... Uh, these other military alliances like AUKUS. So it toward the end of the Trump administration, it really did get fucked. It's great for them to have Biden in place right now and to have trouble some other fucking part of the planet right now because it takes a little bit of the heat off of them. But they've got issues with France. Remember, they're the ones that uh, kind of fucked Macron out of the submarine deal in favor of our nuclear submarines by joining AUKUS and then having to purchase submarines from us. So, you know, it's like we, we use... Australia as a pawn when it's convenient for us. But, you know, Australians are you know, self-determined country. They have their own independent thoughts and they have their own trading partners that are, you know, more important to them on a day-to-day -day basis than us. Problematically, though, those exports, that 40% that they export to um, China, the 15% that they send to Japan, they're primarily exporting beef and poultry and mining resources and natural gas. Very, very problematic as you look towards a renewable future. So 
the real politique side of me that's interested in what is happening there is that if so much of the GDP and the economy down in Australia is related to these type of industries, you can understand the reluctance to decarbonize and defossilize the economy down there. That's a real paradox. In the United States, it's not it's not even that dramatic. Like it should be so much easier for us to break from the fossil habit and and to get uh, into the, the Green New Deal and a renewable future and a renewable economy. So what I want to understand going forward, for example, with respect to climate change, is I know there's a great deal of desire among the population there to pursue a green and renewable future. But if the bulk of your industry is still comprised of these very uh, old, dirty processes, then that's going to be a trigger. So the light that I saw in there was that 75% of the economy is a service-based economy. That's tricky. So different time zone. Kind of hard to get to. It's not like it can necessarily become. Could it? Well, could it become the next nation of coders, like like India has become or Ukraine has become? Could it? You know, what does that service economy look like? That's something other than tourism, because tourism is dicey too, and tourism is, you know, not the best thing for the planet either. So there's a, so many things for us to continue to unwrap and to unravel in the conversation about the Australian economy, how it relates to the Chinese economy and trade relationships and the growth in Asia, how it relates to not being able to break from the constraints of a fossil fuel uh, economy. I just, um, I love it. But I felt like we couldn't easily get into that without doing this table setting episode. So for all of our Yanks out there, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, maybe even some of our Uncanuckers recognize some familiar themes in there that they hadn't thought about before. Although, you know, all of my experience with Canadians is that they know, they seem to know everything happening all around the world. It's only us that don't, that don't realize any of this shit. So even the Canadians are probably listening to this going, you didn't know that? How stupid are you, eh? Yeah. No, you don't like, like when I do bad Canadian accents. No, I'm just, you know, I'm you found, to, you you found know a way to work it in. I'm allowed to. I know. Okay. I'm going to tell you why, unfuckers. But I have standing in Canada. Anyway. You're really revealing a lot these days. I know. They're going to find you. They'll never find me. So, for pod love? I like an Australian podcast called The Weekly Planet. It is not politics related. They started as a, like a comic book podcast. Comic book, pop culture, but now they just... They're more just general entertainment. And I've been listening to them for like, I don't even know, seven years, eight years. No kidding? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so wait, do you speak Australian? A little bit. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. No, a lot of their weird references just from that, from listening to them. Learn something new about you every day. Yeah. Fluent in Australian. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So uh, check them out. They have a whole network there, Weekly Planet Broadcasting. For political podcasts, The Guardian seems to have like a kind of a, a hold and the australian and the australian that's yeah. right and we reached out to a podcast we're hoping to get in touch with them if you're listening to this progressive podcast progressive podcast and the juice media podcast oh that's right how fucking funny is juice media by the way i love them a lot for book love you heard political troglodytes you did and, book love, i know so for book love as we talked about we have political troglodytes and economic lunatics and the other book that I was quoting uh, very briefly in the top of the episode is something called The Parliamentary Government of the Commonwealth of Australia. And that is a book about 
the founding, uh, the Constitution and how it was crafted. But so I read about the first half of it um, because it gives a lot of detail about what was going on at the prior to the turn of the century. The, the book, the last publication of it, I think, was written in like 1948 or 49. Um, so it gives a good historical analysis. But it's also one of those like fucked up books that is giving you sort of, you know, the real time analysis of how the Commonwealth came together. So it's got really derisive terms in there in terms of First Nations people, you know, very dismissive of, you know, of Aboriginal culture and things like that. And I just found it interesting to see how far we've kind of traveled from that type of language to where we are today. Because it serves as a reminder to me that, you know, as fucked up as things are, we have made progress in terms of, you know, accepting and adopting new language, coming to terms with our histories, you know, facing up to the truth and reconciliation aspects of, uh, of, former atrocities that uh, kind of define Western nations and Anglo nations in, in totality. So anyway, so I dug that and that was a lot of fun. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design master Manny Faces Media. First, I would just like to pay my respects to my elders, both past and present. Any elders present here today and any elders of different nations are here today. To all the Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, I'd like to pay all my respects to your families, both past and present. And lastly, I'd just like to pay my respects and deep in, deepest condolences to the Warren family. <clears throat> like most of you here tonight, I too have memories of shame. When I was eight years old, I was at the MC test with my grandfather. I was sitting in the members section where the Aussies would run down the race. We were batting at the time and we had a rare batting collapse. When it was Warney's turn to bat, I remember him walking past me um, within such awe. His batting stint though was, was, was quicker than the walk out to the ground. But what happened when he got back was just amazing. It was dead silent as Warney walked up the race. I stood up on my chair and within earshot I said, well batted Warney. The crowd giggled. Warney came up to me, wrapped my hair and said, cheers little man. 10 minutes later, Warney came back down and asked me, how would you like to spend the rest of the day with the team? Of course I said yes. That was an experience that I'll never forget. But that wasn't the best part. For the next two years, Warren would write me letters for nothing other than just to see how I'm going. This man was an outright rock star. So for him to do that just goes to show, no matter who you are, or no matter what you've achieved in your life, it's important to always stay humble and care for everyone. This is a life lesson that I've carried ever since that moment. So I just want to say thank you to Warney. In conclusion, I'd just like to say, Wurundjeri Balik Himengundi Bik, which means you're all most welcome to the home of the Wurundjeri people. I wish to welcome you all from the tops of the trees and the roots in the ground. And I truly believe if we look after this country, it will look after us. Thank you. Rest easy, King. The show is lovingly produced by the great, powerful, omnipotent, and omniscient 99. Can't think of a single band from Australia. No, not one. No, 
never, never well, happened, just right? Just Colin Hay, right? Just Colin Hay. Just men at work? Yeah. That's it. Which is offensive. Totally. All right, so we need some music suggestions from Down Under Fuckers. Australian bands. Oh, ACDC. Tame Impala. Nick Cave's Australian. Get out of here. Who knew? Not I. Savage Garden. King Gizzard. Wow. Ooh. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Not a band. Not a real band. Who are these people? What do you want to do here? You just keep going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our theme music is composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. And the show is hosted by Koalas and distributed by Boomerangs. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Get some native roasty coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. And read our essays on Substack at UNFTR.substack.com. And remember, it'll always be free, even for you down under fuckers. I googled how to say bye in Australia. It says hooroo. Hooroo. <laughs> Hooroo! 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 Hooroo. Caused the economy to tank like all others in 2020, but 2020. <laughs> uh, you said penal. <laughs> uh, penis. <laughs> never, never not funny. <laughs>